Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Voice for Victims podcast. First, I want to say thank you, everyone, for joining me tonight. And our special guest that's going to be on the show is Steve Bell. Tonight's show will be dealing with important issues for victims. We will have with us tonight someone who is responsible for supervising and educating convicted offenders serving a sentence in the Tennessee state prison system. He's going to discuss what the Victim Impact Program is and the re-entry program in the state of Tennessee. Mr. Bell has approximately 30 years working in the criminal justice system, and he is a licensed CTE instructor at the state of Tennessee Riverbend Maximum Security Institution. He is a RMS hostage negotiator as well. Wow. He has a lot of experience over the years in the criminal justice field, and I am very impressed. I think everyone listening will appreciate learning about these very important topics. That all being said, let's welcome Steve Bell to the show. Good evening, Steve. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Crystal. I appreciate you having me on. You're welcome. How are you doing tonight? I'm well. How's the weather in your area? A little bit of rain, but uh, I think we'll be all right. Okay. Well, I guess we will start. Can you tell our audience a little bit about who you are and your background? Um, I am a 62-year-old Southerner, but you've probably already figured that out by hearing me talk. But I get that honestly. I've lived in Tennessee for my entire life and been an educator, as you said, for about half of that time. Um, So... That's that's where we are now. So um, that being said, what made you get into this line of work? Like what motivated um, you to do it? I actually was contacted by the Department of Corrections and offered a job teaching a program. Um, I was in a complete... Um, completely different field of work at the time, but they wanted to start an industrial to teach the offenders a basic uh, entry-level job skill. Um, My background was in industrial commercial cleaning at the time, and they offered me a good job with a future and, uh, and a pretty good salary increase. So I didn't actually intend to get into criminal justice I just kind of caught a lucky break and took advantage of it. Well, that's awesome. You know, I mean, you jumped and then you're like you're doing so well, I'm sure, now with it. I'm, it I'm sure you probably have to did it, right? Absolutely. Um, when I came in, I was a true vocational instructor um, where I taught um, in the classroom and the lab. I taught them job skills, and um, that worked very well for me. And over time, the needs of the inmates have changed, 
and with that, so did my job responsibilities. Um, the job I originally signed on to do kind of became less important in the early 2000s. And instead of teaching the actual job skill, the department chose to teach the soft skills that it takes to obtain a job and to keep a job. So the actual title of the program that I teach is Career Management for Success, where we teach the men, in my case, um, how to apply for a job and interview and fail themselves and, and start a new career once they get out of prison. Um, that's something that we had not done before. Another so is that part like, of this course is that similar is the, to the, like, oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, is that oh, something, is that called like reentry? That's exactly what it is. It's the, um, it's what has become the uh, reentry program for the Department of Corrections okay. statewide. Pre-release is what uh, it's actually referred to as, is the pre-release program where uh, we found that men who are, and women alike who have been incarcerated for a length of time take on a different way of thinking a lot of times. There's an incarcerated way of thinking that doesn't play very well in the free world. So what we do with the pre-release or re-entry program is try to reprogram the thinking so they can go back to thinking as a free world individual. In prison, we make most of the decisions for them. When to get up, when lockdown is, when breakfast is, we do the laundry for them. You know, that uh, in some ways is kind of debilitating. So we created this program to help those who are close to getting out refocus on the things that are important to them to be able to do for themselves once they reenter society. Right. Yeah, it's similar to like our our program, um, you know, in our state too. You know, we call it the reentry program. Mm -hmm. Um, And then like, go ahead. I was going to say we go further than that. Mine is just a certified program through the Tennessee Department of Education. Um, I am a licensed teacher, so my program is certified through the Department of Ed, and the inmates can actually get certification as if they were taking the program on the streets. So um, my part of it is curriculum-driven. We also have a reentry specialist who works the next level, beyond me. If I get issues with my students that they need more than I can give them within the boundaries of my curriculum, then I refer them to the reentry specialist who does everything else. Driver's license, birth certificate, social security card, all the things that help them be prepared to reenter society and gain employment, housing, those kind of things. Okay. Yeah, that's similar to, um, you know, here. At least it was back when I used to work um, in the field. Now, you had also said that you are involved in the victim impact um, program. Can you tell the audience a little Mm -hmm. bit about that? Victim impact um, within the Tennessee Department of Correction, which I'll refer to as TDOC, 
the victim impact program was actually developed at my institution uh, 20-something years ago. It's not something that we had taught before, but the department felt strongly that we need to make um, the offenders aware of the consequences of their actions because a lot of times they don't see um, their victims. A lot of them will tell you that they have no victims. If they just sell drugs, they, you know, I don't have a victim. I didn't hurt anybody. So it became important to make sure that they understood that victimization goes far beyond the individual. And so we started developing the program, I think it was around 2004. And um, we've grown it and expanded it. And it's one of the bigger things that we do. It carries as much weight in my classroom as the CMS does. We make sure that each one of them, each one of my students, um, recognizes what they've done and who was affected and the links that the victimization goes to. It's not just the direct individual you dealt with, but it's family, friends, coworkers. Um, you know, it's the ripple effect that they talk about that victims or the entire circle around the people that you dealt with. So we uh, we try to cover that in depth with them so that they do realize how far their actions have, have gone. Are you able, um, do you ever, like, show examples of different um, people, that may, like maybe some of their stories and maybe, like, have them come speak? Or, you know, when you're doing the classroom, do you ever, like, touch on that at all, like real people that it happens to do. That is a major component in the, uh, in the program. It is a, my, my program is a 12-week course, and it's broken down into 12 modules. We're able with the Victim Impact Program to break it down into 12 distinct crimes, which covers all the crimes that are represented by those incarcerated. So that, you know, on the week that we're talking about um, robbery, we'll go in depth as to what kind of victims uh, are created from robbery and use individuals who have experienced that crime as examples. Um, we do homicide, um, sexual abuse, uh, domestic violence, drunk and impaired driving, homicide. And uh, each one of those comes with a, a list of people who have had to endure those crimes. So it's pretty easy to find folks that will speak about what they've had to endure. One of my best speakers my... is uh, a lady that I've known for about 11 years. She lost her son, her only son, to a impaired driver, and um, she felt it to be her mission to continue to tell his story, keep his legacy alive, and hopefully, by telling the story, prevent others from drinking and driving or driving impaired. So she started coming to River Bend a year after um, he was killed and started talking to my class every semester. So in the past 11 years, 
She's told her story in my classroom 44 times. She tells the details of how the two of them got to that point because she was a single parent. He was her only son. So when she lost him, she was victimized. He was victimized to start with because his life was lost. Secondly, there's his mother, who now, um, being a single mom, she's lost her only son. And any chance she had for anything beyond that. You know, when she first started telling her story, it's, you know, no one will ever call me mom again. And that, you know, that gets to my students when they think beyond all those wrecks, somebody died. You know, now, having heard her story for 11 years, she is reflecting on the fact that he would be turning 30 this year, and now she's not getting the opportunity for grandchildren. So when you can actually hear the stories, the personal end of the stories of the people who became victims through no fault of their own, it it changes you. And I'll be honest, it did me. I mean, the first few times I heard her story, it was hard for me to listen to. If you, you know, if you put yourself in, in her position, it's, uh, it's pretty tough. So um, I'm grateful that she's willing to come and speak to my class because um, I, see, I see a different side of my students when they're confronted with the actual people who have been hurt by some of the things that they've been a part of. Right. Yeah, I think it's very impactful. You know, just like within our our state, um, we have this um, victim impact panel that Mothers Against Drunk Driving puts on. And I attended some of them, you know, when I was a probation officer, I would have to go and breath test these people. And I -hmm. just remember, you know, like, you know, watching this, stories like they actually had people real life people come and and tell about how either their child or their mother or their father got killed by a drunk driver and I remember people leaving you know crying um you know and I was even you know it affected everybody I mean it was very impactful and Mm -hmm. you know you know I I just I think the victim impact program victim impact panel I think it works very well um and I hope they always continue to do that because um, these people need to hear and see these real-life victims out there because it's not just the person that loses their life, it's the family as well. Anybody that was connected to that person, you know, is victimized. Correct. So I think it's great, you know, like what, like, you know, what you're doing and you know, everybody that is doing that type of work is is excellent because it it is, you know, putting it at a different level where some will think, well, you know, I didn't, I don't have any victims. Well, yeah, you do. You know, anytime you commit mm-hmm. any crime, there's a victim, no matter what it is. Yeah. When I, when I started, I did not, um, I didn't know that much about the victim side of anything. It's something that the department added to what I already taught. So they sent me to training, and I sat through several um, victim stories, and that was extremely life-changing for me because I knew I was going to be left to teach this for an extended period of time. And over the years, um, I've come to understand a lot of things and uh, and grown in a lot of ways from 
the things that I've you know shared with them. Um, Kathy, the, the woman that comes and speaks for me, she is a member of MAD here in uh, Middle Tennessee, and I have spoke on her behalf at the victim impact panel here in Dixon, where victims come together and present their story to the community. And in this case, it was to the legislators who she was making a uh, plea to extend the victim impact program, not only in the state prison, but in the county jails and uh, potentially in the high schools so that everybody got to hear this and know maybe in advance instead of after the fact what the actual long-term ramifications of these you know crimes actually are so um it's you know it's the last 20 years have been very different for me because this is a more personal part of my job the the teaching of the job skills and stuff that's kind of professional but it's hard to talk to to these students these inmates about their specific time in life where they made bad decisions, made mistakes, committed crimes, and have them actually analyze themselves and, and, and have breakthroughs and see things in their own life that they've never thought of before. Um, that's the personal side of my job. Um, it, you know, it, it's completely different because it right. does require um, tearing down of walls. And that's that's one thing that I found inmates are very good at, is building walls and showing their tough side. They do not want to appear vulnerable. But if, you know, we make any kind of breakthroughs in the victim impact program, you're going to see their vulnerabilities. And when that happens, you know that the program has done some good. Mm-hmm. Right. Have you ever had anyone, um, like, have you ever seen someone come out of prison that um, changed, you know, uh, after you working with them over the years, like they actually became successful? Um, Yes, uh, is the short answer. Uh, But success has been varied. Because for a long time, I was just teaching the job skill, and that was a little harder to to assess um, change and, and success. But I did, in the beginning, have some, some individuals who got out and took the job skills that they were taught and not only got a job but became business owners and even entrepreneurs, which kind of surprised me because I didn't see that as being a possibility on the front end. But... Don't ever underestimate the abilities of some of these men who are incarcerated. You know, I think we tend to kind of, you know, throw them all in the same basket. But, you know, I have guys in my classroom with everything up to and including a Ph.D. I have M.D.s. I have, you know, masters. Um, You know, all, all walks of life commit crime, so when they get to prison, we dress them the same and we walk them the same and we require them to take the same programs. But they're as diverse as any group of people on the planet. And uh, so, you know, you have to address each one of them differently so what they do when they get out is going to be different as well. But right. I did have some who were very successful with their job skills and started their own businesses. 
when we switched over to the CMS and started teaching the job skills, the program was intended to be judged on recidivism. What they thought was that if we teach them more how to function, how to um, apply for jobs, work the job, be productive on the job, those kind of things, um, the soft skills, that they would have a better chance of getting employed and staying employed. Um, So for a while, they tracked recidivism, those that didn't have job skills when they got out. How many of those came back to prison as opposed to the ones who had gone through my program and had the job skill training? They found that the numbers were much lower with the right training, that they would get out and have a better ability to be productive and and earn a living, and in doing so, um, stay out and not come back to prison. So those successes come from not seeing the same faces come back through the door. When it comes to the victim impact, I've seen a lot of guys get out and take what changed them in the victim impact program and work it into their life going forward. I have those that are working with at-risk youth, those that are working in community outreach projects. Um, I have a couple of guys who have started their own um, business where they go out and do outreach programs. So um, the last, I'd say, 10 years, the success rate has doubled, maybe even tripled, because of the the individuals that I now teach. The CMS program requires inmates to be within 12 to 24 months of release. That's a different audience than I taught in the beginning. If you've got 30, 40, 50 years of life to do in prison, there's not really that much incentive to focus on the outside world. But now that I'm in the position that I am and all of my students are almost ready to get out, They understand the value of what my program brings. I can teach them job skills. I can teach them, you know, I I bring speakers in all the time that talk about an array of subjects from finance to child support to transitional housing to education after release. Um, I bring in as many as I can to share as much information as I can because that's the one thing that will change their outlook is to know things. I found over time that the biggest deterrent for most of these men, they don't know. I think I assumed that they knew so much more about the world in general, but I found that a lot of times they don't. In the absence of knowledge, they just act. And those actions is what usually ends them in prison. Right. Yeah, they, it's like their home life, you know, however they're raised, you know, they may have not been taught and then, you know, they just decide to, you know, kind of fend for themselves because they don't know any better. Mm-hmm. And it's good that that this is happening now because it's like before they get out, they're given the resources, you know, that they weren't given years ago and they can be more productive because they may have a journal or a um, appointment book. You know, one of the things that we would hand mm-hmm. out um, when I did the reentry program was 
like, you know, sometimes we'd have like appointment books um, given to them so that they could keep track of any appointments that they were going to be going to. And then like maybe a list of resources of phone numbers of places, like if they needed housing or anything, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, they were given all that. So, I mean, that is a way, like, it's like a 360 from years ago. Like, they would just let them out on the street, you know, and then now, well, like, what's happening, like, what you're saying, I mean, I, I think it, it helps going forward, and I think it's great that, you know, that it's continuing, that it's still going on, and, you know, it's being productive. What I found... um once we really got to asking the in-depth questions was that a lot of the men coming through my program, even though I called them men, they were still children. They had been arrested, tried, convicted, and incarcerated before they ever turned 18 or shortly after 18. So some had never had a driver's license. So we're tar- you know, before we were turning them out onto the streets and they had nowhere to go or nothing to do. They they just didn't know. I've got a lot of guys that have never worked an actual job. Either they were too young, they were not employable, or they chose to um, make their money other ways, dealing, stealing, whatever. So, you know, those are not good uh, job plans. You need something a little more stable when you get out. So... um, that's where this program has come in and, and really strengthened um, the guys leaving our institution is that they just have more material, or as I call it, more tools in their toolbox to use to build a better future. Right. Now, in your state, do you have, like, you have the reentry specialist. Do you also have like an actual probation officer or parole officer? It would be parole officer in, in, because you're in the prison. Mm-hmm. So do you have like a parole officer that specializes in reentry and like kind of takes them after that, like works with the reentry specialist in the prison? Not that I'm aware of. Or is it just sent to general we, caseload? Well, for probably 25 of my 30 years, Probation and parole were completely separate from the Tennessee Department of Correction. I didn't know who they were or actually what they did. Five, six, seven years ago, we merged probation and parole and corrections all under the same umbrella. So now we're all the same department. I know a little bit more now because the guys leaving my custody are assigned to a parole officer when they leave, if they're leaving on parole. So I've seen that part of it, but from the time they leave, I never see or hear from anyone in in probation and parole. So I don't know exactly how they approach the reentry portion of that, but we have a specialist um, on site at the institution who, like I said earlier, um, whatever I need to do next, that I can't do within my curriculum, she will take that and work with them. Um, it starts with uh, reestablishing their identity through social security, birth certificate, those kind of things. Um, job placement. She also um, 
while the guys have outstanding fines, restitution. Uh, they've lost their driver's license, and there are fines that prevent them from regaining the driver's license. So she'll work individually with each one that wants to with the county where the fines are owed so that they can get that to a manageable level. Because if you get out and they will not allow you to regain your driver's license, how are you supposed to get a job and keep a job? There are just so many things stacked against guys getting out. And that's where I think we've grown by leaps and bounds in the Department of Correction is identifying all the things that we can do to help them be successful instead of just, like you said, just walking them out the gate and saying, you know, have a nice life. We try to cover as many of those uh, aspects before they leave as we can. And the reentry specialist is a big part of that. That's a position that was probably created nine, ten years ago, and uh, it's grown into a very vital part of, uh, of what the institution does to, to ensure success. Luckily, I'm able to work jointly with her as an extension of my program, and uh, we've, we've tried to work to, to hone that to, to best serve our guys as they get out. Well, I think it's awesome, you know, what you're doing, you know. Um, yeah. So what, like, keeps you motivated um, on what you're do- doing? Like, what keeps you going? You know, because it is such a, in a way, it's a depressing job, but it's also a rewarding job. But I'm sure it's, you know, stressful to a point, you know, working inside the walls of the prison and, seeing those people there, I mean, does that ever affect you at all? I honestly don't feel that stress is a component of it for me. I'm just kind of worn down um, doing it for so long. It's a very oppressive uh, environment just by its nature. Um, so, you know, it's it's easier you don't see a lot of people do security for 30 years anymore, hardly any. It's easier for me because I'm not in security. I'm in treatment. I don't wear the uniform. I go in in free world clothes, and I work with these individuals as if they're my coworkers. I'm talking about the inmates. I have a different relationship mm-hmm. with the inmates than the officers do. They look at them as, the, as they call them the police. You know, I'm just Mr. Bell, and they come to me because they know I have resources that will help them. Now, I'm still security-minded. That's still a part of my job. I have to be security first. But, you know, education is a very close second, and uh, the support of each man individually um, is third. Uh, What keeps me motivated? you know, I've made some really good relationships throughout the years. Um, I found that a lot of the men that are incarcerated are truly good human beings that made a mistake. Or, you know, a lot of times drugs is at the root of large percentages of these crimes. You know, it... All these guys got locked up, like I said before, at a really early age. And once you've done 10, 15, 20, 30 years, you're not the same human being at all. 
So working with some of these guys that I've seen take advantage of what I offer and then go and use it and become successful. Um, you know, I'm like I tell them, oh, I'm not Mother Teresa. You know, I don't go there to save the world. But I do feel a good sense of pride when I see someone get out and regain their freedom, regain their life, reconnect to family and friends, and become successful. What I can see now that I couldn't see 20, 30 years ago is I can see their success because almost to a man, when they get out and start applying the job skills and, you know, the, the values that we try to teach them, once they get established, they want people to know that. And for some reason, they want me to know. And I'll get a Facebook friend request. I get two to three a week from former students that have gotten out and found that the things that we've tried to teach them are beneficial and have helped them have a better life than they probably ever had before. Once we become Facebook friends, I can watch them from a distance be successful, see them get jobs, get promotions, get engaged, get married, have children. You know, all that now, you can see the fruits of your labor through social media when you know, once upon a time you couldn't. So um, that probably is, does more for me later in my career than anything is just I can actually see tangible evidence of what I do. Right. Yeah, that is, that is true. Cause like, I just know with me, like different people I've worked with over the years, you know, I've seen stuff on Facebook and, you know, some of them are success stories and it's nice to know that, you know, that you may have changed somebody for the better. And I guess that would be something that would motivate you know, yeah, it, but um, what, I just think you're just—I think you're like a servant leader for sure. <laughs> you know, once upon a time, it just wasn't that gratifying because, again, I didn't start my career where I'm at. I started at a rural prison, which uh, was basically called a time building facility. We have about 14 prisons in Tennessee, and we house probably—I don't know around 30,000 inmates. Well, some of them have extremely long sentences to do, so we have to have certain prisons that allow them to just go and do time. Now, granted, while they're doing time, there are jobs and there are programs there, but there's no hope of them going anywhere for a long period of time. That was the hardest part. I was new at it, and all my students were less than motivated. You know, as time's gone on, I've transferred to Nashville, Tennessee, to a more metropolitan area, more professional, um, with um, inmates who are not as confined for as long. That was the thing that made my job easier is changing the demographic of the students that were in my classroom to those that were getting ready to get out. It's a whole different um perspective for the student when you know you're going to get out and get an opportunity to restart as opposed to those that knew they were down for 30 years. It helped a lot to uh, to get a different um, group of students in my classroom, and that's what I've been lucky enough to have for about the last 10 years. 
is those guys that are close to going home and uh, they they take the training a lot easier than, than the other groups. I think it's awesome what you're doing and um I just think that what you're doing in society is wonderful and your efforts to try and rehabilitate these offenders from reoffending is remarkable. And, you know, I'm sure your listeners are happy to be able to hear about what you're doing because it's trying to keep the community safer, you know, because obviously there's crimes committed every day and we can't save everyone, but um, the fact that the prison system's trying to change it so that they don't rehabilitate, they don't recidivate and return to prison is great. Do you have anything else that you want to touch on tonight? Um, no, a lot of the guys that we're talking about are only there for one lapse in judgment. You know, and we do have the ones that, that you see on the nightly news that commit heinous crimes and, and some who you know premeditated in, in their approach to, to criminal enterprise. But the vast majority of these people um, did not intend to be criminals. They got busted using drugs or selling drugs or transporting drugs or, you know, um, we've had just so many that come in for just a lapse in judgment. That goes back to the drinking and driving thing. You know, I get um, every semester when uh, when Kathy comes in and, and tells her story about losing her son to a drunken impaired driver, almost invariably I'll have someone in my classroom that's there for that very offense. They got drunk and killed the passenger in their car or hit someone and, and killed them in a drunken impaired uh, vehicular accident. And, um, you know, that's, that's the thing that I think a lot of people don't know is they say that 98% of all individuals incarcerated will eventually get out. That's a number that I, or a percentage I, I would have never guessed. Because you don't see those stories on the news. You see the ones that, that get big sentences and stay in prison for a long time. But most everyone in there will be eligible to get out at some point in time. And a lot of them are just individuals who, by lapse in judgment, had to do some time before they get out. Those are the ones that, and you can tell, they're the ones that, that really take to the services that are offered by the Department of Correction, and they really try to polish themselves up so they can get back out and be successful. They know they're not coming back. They never intended to come in the first place. It was just, again, you know, bad decisions uh, sometimes have extreme consequences. But um, those are the ones that are, are the easiest to deal with because they're kind of focused. A lot of them actually had careers before coming to prison. Can we help focus on getting um, back to that career or back in that job field? I mean, a lot of these guys know what they're going to do when they get out because they had great jobs when they came to prison. So those are the easy ones. Um, there are those in the middle that just don't know what they're going to do. That's where I get my greatest satisfaction 
is seeing someone light up thinking, oh, this, you know, this could help. You know, this guy or these people, they, they seem to care enough to help me. And then once, once an inmate will open up and talk to you and ask you questions and confide in you, then you can make progress. That's one of the biggest deterrents is, again, those walls that, uh, that they tend to want to build for themselves, you know, and where they can hide behind and don't have to expose themselves. You know, if you can get through that and get, get them to open up about what is it that you want to do, you know. I have all of them day one when they come in, first day of the semester, is write a personal expectation sheet if they want to. A lot of guys don't really want to tell you anything about themselves, so I'll make it optional. But if you want to tell me something, I won't share it with anyone. Tell me what you hope to get out of this class in the next 12 weeks. That way I can take it to my office, I can sit down, I can read through it individually and find out what this guy wants, what he needs, what he's lacking in his life, where he wants to go, those kind of things. That helps me focus on certain things with that one student. And that's been very helpful. The ones, like I say, that are in the middle that are just lost and don't really know where they're going to go and what they're going to do, I pull them in individually and talk to them about the specific things that I can do to help them achieve those personal expectations over the next 12 weeks if they're willing to work with me. You know, first off, they have to want it. I can't do it for you, but if you want to work toward this, I will be your best ally, and we'll work at getting you better and out of here and successful together. Those are the ones that you seem to uh, to enjoy the most because they're like, you don't like the analogy, but it's almost like a you saved a soul there because he didn't have it, and before he leaves, he does, and uh, that feels that feels good at times. Right. Yeah, I think it helps the fact that um, when they're returning to society, they've got resources, you know, going out, which is great. We try to align as many as we possibly can. Um, Those that have housing, um, some do. Some have resources leaving. The majority don't. So... um, our reentry specialist, one of her biggest things is working with all the halfway houses to see who will take who because all the houses have different criteria for what they will accept and what they want. So I have a, a list of about 10 to 12 that we work with, and um, some of them come to my classroom as outside speakers. And they make the, the men aware of, you know, this is what's available to you, not only transitional housing, but um, job training and uh, and other things to help bridge the gap between release from prison and your first paycheck. Part of my CMS program is the speaker series that I've been able to cultivate over time. We have all kind of nonprofits in the national area, and I'm sure they exist statewide, but I just work with the national area that, that come in and um, their doors are open to any guy leaving prison, male or female. Uh, I tend to talk in the mail because that's what I do every day, but 
like Project Return, right. um, Tennessee, as a T-Palm, Tennessee Prison Outreach Ministry. Um, there's several that have open doors. If you are convicted of a felony and you have a TDOC number, once you're released, all you have to do is go and and walk in the door, and they will make you a client and and help you with, you know, sometimes it's as little as, you know, bus tokens. If you don't have transportation, we'll give you tokens to get around town to apply for jobs. Um, if you don't have food, they'll give them, you know, a sack of canned goods. Um, clothing, they partner with Men's Warehouse, and uh, they can give you clothing. Um, they'll give you three-day job training. And upon the completion of that three-day job training seminar, job placement. They give you the tools, uh, protective clothing that it takes to do that job if, if it's required. So for men getting out that have, you know, a lot of times they'll be in long enough that they'll lose connections to family. That happens more than you know. A lot of times families will write individuals off. And they get out and they have nothing. So some of these partners that... Uh, that come to my program and and, uh, and talk are one of the best resources we have as well because they pick up where we leave off. When the man leaves the gate to the prison, he's either left to, you know, use what he's learned or there's these groups that can bridge that gap until he can actually become employed and really beneficial as well. Right. Well, I think it's great what your state is doing. Um, you know, I I think it's great what you're doing. You know, I just think it's it's going to help greatly, you know, with the victims out there and just different people in society, you know, because you figure when these people have to get out and get integrated back with their family, the fact that they get educated, you know, it probably changes them for the better. You know, they probably were having fighting issues and, and different issues within the home if they were on drugs or addicted to alcohol, you know, and now they've been sober for however long they've been in prison and the fact that they've gotten education, which they're more motivated to want to go out and get a job, they're more motivated mm-hmm. to want to go to that AA meeting or NA meeting, you know, because they have been around that because I believe that like anytime you watch something, you read something, you're soaking it in your brain and that's who you become. So the fact that you're educating them and they're hearing this, it's it's getting into their brain and it's it's changing them for the better, which will hopefully make them more productive when they go out and maybe improve their relationships with their family as well. Mm-hmm. I think so. Um, um, you know, we touch on that uh, some in the program. I don't... Um, it's not my area of expertise to get, you know, too personal with them. I, I don't feel comfortable doing that. But sometimes some of these individuals have no one else to talk to. So I end up being a sounding board, if nothing else. Um, and I hear about the family relation, relationships or the lack thereof and uh, the difficulties um, getting out. And there, there's just a lot of different aspects that I would have never known going in. Um I, I tell a lot of them that in my in my time, I've probably learned more from the thousands of students I've had than they've learned from me. You know, I'm just one guy talking. I can only tell them so much. But I've had thousands of guys come to me individually 
with their stories and their experiences and their past. And um, I, I feel blessed to have been in that position because, you know, in some ways the oppressive nature of prison has probably taken away certain qualities in my life, but it's also given me others. So um, when I went there, like I said, they recruited me and sold me on teaching in prison. At that time, I had no idea that each prison has an entire education program within it. We have a principal, a secretary. Um, There are academic teachers, as many as necessary, and then vocational or CPE instructors such as myself. And when, when guys come into the system, if they don't have a high school diploma, that's one of the first things we try to align them with is the ABE program, the Adult Basic Education, so that they can get their GED or HICET, as it's called now, which is an equivalency diploma, because you can't do much without that. And if we can get them motivated enough to be successful that first time with a GED, which most have never been successful at anything, that one small success that's the groundwork for other successes. That's where our vocational programs come in. We have masonry, carpentry, cosmetology. Um, there's just a, depending on the institution, there's a wealth of vocational programs taught by licensed vocational instructors. So where I don't currently teach the job skill, there are hundreds of vocational instructors in the Department of Corrections that teach these men how to lay brick, how to wire houses, how to pour concrete, how to build cabinets and furniture. And uh, I had no idea that all this was available, but that's also part of the department's vision of rehabilitating these individuals so that they don't recommit crimes and come back to see us, you know, uh, with as many people as we have and with the majority of them getting out. They all have to go live somewhere, and you know the reality is they come to your neighborhood, your subdivision. They move into the houses next to you. The best thing we can do is ensure that they, you know, go about their next phase of life in a way that you don't never know that they were, they were felons. Because that's right. honestly what happens. You know, they just reintegrate back into society and become productive members and. Uh, and as I like to say in the classroom, they rebrand themselves. You don't have to be tied to who you were. You did your time for that, and you got out. Now you rebrand yourself. You just become whoever you want to be. Let's make that a good person. Yeah, I like that way of thinking. Because that's true. I mean, they made a mistake. You know, now they can, you know, change and move on for the better. Mm-hmm. But we're um, we're getting close to the the time. Um, would do you have like any contact information that you would like to give out to the listeners um, in case they would ever want to reach out to you? If they had any questions? Sure. Yeah, any questions, comments, um, you know, further discussions. I'm open to all of that, um, and I can receive that through my email um, in my office. Um, just send it to steve.s.bell, as in Tennessee, tn.gov, G-O-V, 
steve.s.bell at tn.gov. Okay. So anyone out there that wants to get in touch with Steve Bell um, at the Department of Tennessee Corrections, um, you know, contact him at that email address and, you know, he'll respond to you when he has time to do that. And um, I also have a website. If anyone wants to go on my show, just been a victim or a survivor or, you know, an educator, an attorney, anyone that wants to get out there and educate the community um, about different legal topics and want to help other victims out there, um, I have a website, voiceforvictimspodcast.com, and then you just go onto the website and you can either send me an email or you can fill out the questionnaire and then I will get in touch with you. And I just want to thank you, Steve, for educating everyone about you know, the victim impact program and the reentry program and all that you do in the prison. And I want to thank you for your service. Um, I feel that you've made a difference in the community and I like what your state is doing. I think it's great. Um, your state leader definitely has it all figured out um, on how to help in the community. And um, I just want to thank you again for coming on the show and I want to thank everyone out there for listening. And I look forward to another show next Thursday. I'm going to be talking about human trafficking. I'm going to have two guests on. And then my saying is always stand up and make a difference for yourself or someone else. So thank you again, Steve, for being on here. Thank you, Chris, and for giving me an opportunity to talk. You're welcome, and I hope you have a good night, and I hope everybody out there has a good night. So um, I guess we'll end the show now, and um, thank you again. Thank you, Crystal. Good night. Bye.